0: Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan. And our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. The U.S. Army that began the Second Seminole War was a small one. Congress historically distrusted large standing armies and disliked even more funding them. As former Secretary of Defense Don Rumsfeld famously remarked about a later conflict, you go to war with the army you have, not the army you might want or wish to have at a later time. Such was the case with the U.S. Army in the Second Seminole War. Fortunately, the Army did not have to fight unassisted. The Secretary of War saw fit to send in the Marines to assist. Joining us today to discuss the historic part played by the U.S. Marine Corps in the Second Seminole War is Dave Eckhart. Dave is the author of the first book on this mobilization and service, aptly titled, The U.S. Marines and the Second Creek and Seminole Wars. Dave Eckhart, welcome to the Seminole Wars. So Dave, you've written this book, The U.S. Marines and the Second Creek and Seminole Wars. Why was it so hard to research this book? All right,
1: having been in the Marines, i was interested in the Marine history. And every book uh, about the Marine, uh, history only had a couple paragraphs about the Seminole War, Second Seminole War. And come to find out that a lot of their documentation got lost to a fire. I used contact up at the Marine Archives, and the only thing that they had was 73 pages of orders written by Army General Jessup to Marine Lieutenant Colonel Sam Miller. Uh, when he was in charge of Tampa Bay and Fort Brook. And that was all they had, and you know, I eventually found in the National Archives a letter, uh, actually it was a speech, that Commandant Henderson uh, gave to the remaining portion of the Marine uh, Regiment when they came back to Washington, D.C. in 1838. Anybody interested in the in Sem- Second Seminole War, this is, uh, this is a good book for them. It's the only book on the Marine action during the Seminole War and the Creek War. It's now in Marine Research Library at Quantico, and also the Naval Institute of Annapolis in their research library, and the Ataiki Seminole Museum down
0: close. to. So Dave, it seems like a preposterous proposition. Marines serving on land in the Second Seminole War. Isn't this why we have an army? How did this anomaly come to pass?
1: The Marines were used on the land before in the Revolutionary War. They fought at Princeton with George Washington, and they fought down at uh, New Orleans during the War of 1812. So they were accustomed to being on land as a crew. Now, Andrew Jackson, as president and having been an Army general, had tried to eliminate the, the Marine Corps as president. However, the Congress wouldn't let him do that. When the Second Seminole War and the Second Creek War came about, the Army was always kept small all through our history, probably up until after World War II, because of financial constraints. And during times of need, it would always be supplemented by uh, state militias and the Marines. So when this came about, the creeks uprose in, in Georgia and Alabama about the same time as the Seminoles in Florida. So the Army was being stretched kind of thin. Commandant Henderson notified all the Marines at the several different naval yards around the country and told them to pack the gear and and get ready to move, leaving just a sergeant's guard at each naval yard and a small detachment at Washington, D.C., where uh, Marines were stationed. Legend has it that after he assembled the men there in Washington and headed out, he had attacked a note on his office door that said, Gone to fight Indians. Be back when the war is over, A. Henderson. And then they headed south the first of Georgia and Alabama from about May of eighteen thirty six through the end of September eighteen thirty six, and from there they went down to Tampa Bay and got there in October of eighteen thirty
0: six. Now a later Marine Corps commandant would say, The nation does not need a Marine Corps. The nation wants a Marine Corps. It seems like Commandant Colonel Archibald Henderson knew this. Who was this commandant? Good old Archie. He was
1: known as the old man of the Marines. He joined the Marines in 1806. Uh, he was a, actually a lieutenant on board the USS Constitution during the uh, War of 1812, and he had several uh, shipboard engagements. He was breveted major in 1814. In October of 1820, then at 37 years old, he was appointed commandant of the Marines, Colonel Commandant.
0: How large was the Marine contingent that he brought down with him? A little over 300. Uh, he had roughly
1: 18 officers and 303 enlisted men. Now, some of the men were already detached from uh, that body from Alabama. They were assigned to escort some of the creeks out west to uh, the Arkansas Territory, which later became Oklahoma. Plus, that was the Marine regiment that he brought down. Marines from the Pensacola Naval Yard and the West Indies Squadron, which was a squadron of ships that patrolled the Gulf of Mexico, the Caribbean, and South. Marines from a couple of those ships were actually the first ones to get into Tampa Bay
0: after the Day Massacre. What was the Marines' mission
1: in Florida? Okay, the Marines' mission in Florida was to assist the Army in rounding up the Seminoles to move Mount West. So they basically had the same mission of the Army. Henderson, when he got here, was actually the second highest ranking officer. So General Jessup, who was in charge, made him his second in command when they went out in the field.
0: Once he arrived with his Marines, they had two duties in the years 1836 and 1837. What were these duties? All right, I already mentioned the West Indies Squadron Marines that came ashore
1: to help right after the Dade Massacre. They helped. Bolster the defenses around Fort Brooke and patrol. Now, when the regiment got there in October 1836, Henderson was put in charge of, they didn't call it Tampa then, they called it Tampa Bay. Uh, so he's put in charge of Tampa Bay, Fort Brooke, which was a large complex, uh, a fort plus outlying buildings, and the port, uh, the small port there, any troops that were coming in, uh, any supplies coming in. He had control over all that. January of eighteen thirty seven is when he took to the field. He had under him, besides most of his Marines, he had Alabama militia, uh, artillery unit, and Creek Indian volunteers. Creek's warriors uh, up in Alabama were given a choice of emigrating right away out west or the warriors could come down here and help ground up the Seminoles. They'd be paid soldiers' wages given the equipment they needed, so several of them did. So that's what Henderson had under him. Now, a contingent of his Marines were mounted troops. Henderson kept some of them that way, and then some of them were put under uh, Jessup as mounted troops. Now, this isn't the first time Marines were mounted. Back during the Revolutionary War, there was a small contingent of them that that were mounted, so that wasn't brand new for them there. Like I said, when, when Henderson took the field then in January 1837, he and his troops went out searching for Seminoles. Also in 1836, Fort Foster was being built in December. Colonel Foster of the Army was sent up to the river crossing of the Hillsborough River on wow. the military road that ran from Fort Brook to Fort King up in the outwards, now Calais. They rebuilt Fort there that had been destroyed, and yeah. he had over 300 men, and And they did it in a day. Also, in December of 1836, some of the Marines of the West Indies Squadron were attached to an army unit under Governor Call. Uh, right before General Jess took over all the troops in Florida, and they made an assault on Wahoo Swamp, and that was an area uh, along the Withlacoochee where there were large bodies of Seminoles. They made their home up there. However, uh, General Call. The Swamp, did not well, and Marine Lieutenant Ross died of wounds that he received there, and he was the first Marine officer to die in combat since the War of 1812.
0: From well, Dave, as Chris Kimball reminds me, Lieutenant Andrew Ross was originally in the US Army. He served in the 7th Infantry at the Battle of New Orleans in January of 1815. He was in charge of the advance redoubt on the corner of the Rodriguez Canal and the river. The British apparently momentarily overran that corner, but the Americans beat them back. Although he was not to blame, especially against fighting against the strongest army of the time, the British army, he got a lot of unnecessary blame anyway. Because of that, he went nowhere in his army career, Chris tells me. Eventually, he resigned to join the Marines, because he was frustrated being passed up for promotion. And there he was with the Marines, deployed to Florida. He's wounded at the Wahoo Swamp and died at Fort Heilman. The Marines were involved in other action, too. What happened at Indian Key?
1: Indian Key was home to several settlers. There was a, there was a settlement there. The Indians made an amphibious landing there. It really did a lot of damage to several of the settlers. One of them actually got away and paddled his way over to Key Table Key. And the Navy had built a real small hospital there for sick settlers and Marines. There were a few that were not part of the sixth contingent there, and they, along with sailors and marines that were recuperating in the hospital, loaded a couple small four-pounder guns on a barge and headed over to Indian Key. In their haste, they grabbed the wrong powder charges for the guns. They grabbed six-pounder charges. Well, as they near the island. The Indians actually loaded the cannon that was on Indian Key and actually used it. A couple shots at the barge they missed. The sailors and the Marines fired the two four-pounders with the wrong powder charge. And on, on the second discharge, both guns went flying off the barge and into the water. They never were recovered for about 35 years. I guess they
0: never made a real serious effort to recover them. However, they did force the Indians off Indian Key. They also saw some action by a lighthouse. Where was the lighthouse? What happened, and how did the Marines assist? That was the Cape Florida Lighthouse on
1: Key Biscayne. When Mr. Thompson, uh, he was the lighthouse keeper. Saw the Indians coming, so they cured themselves in the lighthouse and went all the way up to the top. The Indians ransacked a couple of small shacks and that were there, and then they, uh, at night they set fire to the door of the lighthouse. Of course, Thompson was firing down on them. Uh, his assistant got wounded. The fire at the door of the lighthouse ignited lamp oil inside, and lamp oil ignited the wooden staircase going to the top of the lighthouse. After a while, Wiley tossed down a uh, small keg of gunpowder into the fire and that uh, killed some of the Indians and drove them off. Well, the, the explosion and the light of the fire was seen by a passing navy ship, the Concord. They came ashore in the morning. Sailors and Marine, and um, they had to try to get Thompson down off the lighthouse. His assistant died overnight, so the sailors rigged up a kite with a string on it, trying to get the string up to Thompson on top of the lighthouse so he could pull a rope up, but their attempts failed, so a Marine <laughs> took his ramrod, tied the string to that, put the ramrod in his musket, and fired it over the top of the lighthouse. and uh, Thompson was able to get the string, and then they tied the rope and locked the tackle onto that. He pulled that up and procured it, and then two sailors were able to place themselves up there and, and then lower him and his uh, assistant down from there. Improvise and adapt and overcome by the Marines. Uh,
0: they also helped settle the conflict between a regular Army colonel and his militia folks. What did that entail?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, colonel Lindsay
0: of the Army,
1: uh, he was pretty strict uh, officer, and he had the misfortune of having Alabama militia under him. They were not... The least bit disciplined and on the march they would be shooting at anything and everything just having having a good old time on the march so we uh, restricted the amount of ammunition they could have things still got bad went bad to worse so we made sure they didn't have any work and that was the last straw for them they cut the mane and tail off his course one night made several threats so six Marines of the Concorde were designated and assigned him as his personal bodyguard for as long as he had those
0: Alabama militiamen with him. The Marines were also called by Governor Call, who was panicky, as well as the Florida residents. So he sent a message to uh, Navy Commodore Dallas and said, We need Marines! We need somebody to come up! And so what happened with that?
1: Right after the Dade Massacre, there were some minor attacks up along the panhandle around Apalachicola. And then a lot of rumors of Indians being nearby. Uh, so uh, Commodore uh, Dallas was uh, requested to send Marines ashore on several occasions. Anytime there was a, uh, a rumor of uh, Indians, and
0: whenever there was
1: a, an attack on a settler, uh, so they were they were constantly. And later, uh, not just right after the day Daymaster, but later on, they were constantly patrolling around the rivers and inlets there, and the Panhandle, and around the Bend, the Big Bend there in in Florida. Those were Marines
0: off the West
1: Indies fleet ships.
0: Apparently they didn't find many Seminole, and Commodore thought it was kind of a wasted effort. Yeah, they had
1: a a few minor skirmishes, but uh, Indians, Seminoles, were pretty good at uh, keeping, keeping themselves out of sight.
0: Now there came a period where Colonel Henderson believed that the war was over that peace had been achieved and so he brought his marine regiment back up to Washington. Yet there were still marines right. there. They were marines from this West Indies squadron.
1: In January and February of uh, 1837 when Henderson took his marines and militia and Indians to the creeks out with him Jefferson and his portion his brigade were out they were all searching mid-Florida for uh, Seminoles. Henderson and his men fought one of the larger engagements, actually, of the war, one day running battle with the Seminoles over at Hatchelusty Creek. And Hatchelusty Creek is today known as Reedy Creek, and it's on the western boundary of uh, Disney World. So they had a one day running battle with the Seminoles through the swamps over there, Hatchelusty Creek. Captured over hundred. Of their horses loaded with all their worldly goods, by the end of the day, the Seminoles, having lost all their possessions and, and supplies, and uh, got and were tired of being chased all over the hard place, decided to uh, enter into talks about immigration. And over the next couple months, they had several talks with Jessup. They agreed to bring all their people in over to Tampa Bay. They did this by April. Of 1837. Everybody thought, oh great, they're all coming in, the war is over. The militia units started being sent home. In May, uh, Henderson got permission to take half of his regiment back up north, which he did. And then a couple of militant chiefs came through and intermingled with the Seminoles there waiting to go out west and decided and convinced them
0: they really didn't want
1: to go. So they all took off and disappeared. Started up again. The half of the regiment that was left behind was left in charge of Lieutenant Colonel Sam Miller of the Marines, uh, who had been in charge of Tampa Bay once uh, Henderson had taken the Marines out in the field. Miller had uh, an illustrious background during the War of 1812. He was in charge of Marines and some sailors at Bladensburg, Maryland. They were the last troops to hold the British from being able to get into Washington City. Uh, There were militia with them, but the militia, after a while, fighting the British, took off. They left the Marines there. They fought the British off until they ran out of ammunition and they left. Legend has it that the British commander was so impressed with the stand that the Marines made that when they got into Washington and started burning government buildings, out of respect for the Marines, they did not burn the Marine Headquarters or the Marine or the Commandant's house. Besides the half of the regiment there, Bill had the West Indies Squadron of Marines uh, doing patrols also along South of Florida. A few months later, Sam Miller had to get reassigned because of health, as I recall. So Captain William Delaney was left in charge. Now he took Marines down around Fort Myers area, Sanibel, uh, in that. That area, and he was instructed to build a fortification at Punta Rosa, and he built a small fort there to house
0: supplies and aptly name it
1: Fort Delaney.
0: <laughs> what were some of the firsts that the Marines experienced from this entire mobilization and service? The first time
1: that they moved by train, first time they moved by steamboat, the first time they used uh, tried revolving rifles, repeating rifles, they ended up packing them away right away. The are cult revolving rifles, uh, whether it was because they were kept loaded too long or they were incorrectly loaded. But if you've ever fired a, a black powder revolver, there are times sometimes where the chamber that you want to go off South in the Everglades. Navy Lieutenant Powell first started his sailors and Marines of the West Indies Squadron down along uh, over on the East Coast of Florida, where my Port Lauderdale is now, and around uh, the West Coast and through the Everglades. They had specially built canoes. Some were five-man canoes, some were ten-man canoes, and then there were even some thirty-man. They would patrol rivers and inlets around the island uh, searching for Seminole. Sailors and Marines were also first white men to ever cross the Everglades. They, they left from Fort Dallas, which is Miami today, and spent uh, just under three weeks going across and coming out on the west coast where they were picked up by ships. This was in at the end of December 1840 and January 1841. They spent almost their entire time in canoes, except for when they find some dry land, and usually if they found dry land, there was a, a abandoned a Seminole village, uh, whether it was recently, if they were recently abandoned or abandoned for a long periods of time, and there were actually uh, areas where they came across crops that the Seminoles had planted, pumpkins, bees, corn, a couple other things, which they would uh, root up and, and destroy. Um, they didn't catch. They only caught a few Seminoles on that, that particular trip. They made another crossing in 1840. However, this time they spent a total of 51 days going back and forth across the Everglades. And a young midshipman named Kreble wrote a journal about their 51-day trek across the Everglades. And he he later life actually became an admiral. He described the number of canoes. Size of canoes, the number of naval officers, the number of sailors, number of marine officers, number of marines on this trek, and just describe the whole trip. And also, <laughs> he did this through the eyes of a teenager, which he was. It's all about the food. He talked about how they had fish jumping in into the canoes. So they had fresh fish. Uh, they get occasional bear and deer, uh, raccoons. They always have plenty of fresh eggs raiding right, all the uh wading birds in there and every now and then they'd kill a rattlesnake or a cotton and cook them too. But uh he indicated how when they did find dry land, the marines would usually get out and make foot patrols going around and then meet the boats up. There were sections where the swamp grass was so matted down they could actually walk across it. But when they pushed their push poles down through the grass, they couldn't touch bottom. The water was that deep under it. So they had quite the time going through there. Then again, they didn't come across too many Seminoles. They did find some. And every once in a while, one would actually lead them to the next village, but usually the village is already deserted. The methods that they used were used later by the sailors and Marines during the Civil War on the blockade of the South Navy tasked with blockading all the states of the south. And here in Florida, especially, the sailors and marines on board those ships didn't necessarily spend all their time on the ships. They spent most of their time the ships' boats, rowing into the inlets, into the rivers, uh, around the island, searching for goods ready to be smuggled out, searching for some of the blockade-running ships, and runaway slaves in works So they spent a lot of hours using, using the techniques. Learned in, in the Second Seminole War. And the Navy also pulled out the history books and, and uh, journals and, and studied it when it came time for Vietnam. And they used the same search and destroy methods that they used during the Second Seminole War over in Vietnam, the Mekong Delta, and around the rivers the inlets over there. So they did learn some practices that got used later in, in time. Marines are
0: tough, but service in Florida challenge even the toughest marine. How tough was service for the Marines in Florida in general and in the Everglades especially? Uh, It it was definitely tough. Um,
1: The heat alone, endless mosquitoes (laughs) and bugs in in the long, long hours of either rowing boats or hiking through the hinterland in search of the seminal. So, it was tough duty. Uh, The one good thing was there was always plenty of, of fresh food. Cattle was plentiful across the river from Fort Brook, they maintained cattle herds. They didn't always have to rely on their salt beef and salt pork. Uh, they would have fresh beef. Plus, you know, plenty of fish, plenty of wild game, citrus, there's a lot of citrus around. So they they did eat fairly well.
0: They didn't always have to rely on their hard bread. As we look back on the Marine's glorious past, how does this fit into it? This was good strengthening
1: of the core itself. To have them all together as a
0: main unit and
1: function together, they learned tactics that got used later. And Henderson himself uh, really laid a lot of foundations for the corps as it expanded in later years. So it, it was a it was a good defining moment for the for Marines to be able to work along with the Army and the Navy uh, during these years. <laughs> as as it was, they were part of the Navy, department of the Navy. So on, on, on shipboard, they were under the control of the Navy. On land, they would be put under the control of the Army.
0: And they bought themselves a few years at least before there were future calls to say, well, we really don't need a Marine Corps.
1: Yes, there were, there were several uh, attempts all through the years to fold uh, the Marines into the Army, but they
0: always managed to avoid that. How did you get interested in the Marines and in the Civil Wars?
1: Graduated from high school in '69 and joined the Marines right after that. Spent a little time in Vietnam doing signals intelligence. Always interested in history and the Marine history. Also, Also, like I said uh, earlier, that every Marine history book I ever came across only spent a couple paragraphs on the Second Seminole War, which seemed kind of strange (laughs) since it lasted seven years. But I got started reenacting as a Civil War Marine. There was a small unit up in Brooksville when got got in involved with them as time went on I started doing research on that a couple of magazine articles on the Marines during the Civil War in Florida and I also discovered that uh, a Marine was awarded the Medal of Honor for an attack he made up on Crystal River during Civil War <laughs> and then I was invited to go up to Fort Foster for a panelite event one year uh, since I didn't know at that time the Marines were up there uh, I just went over to militiamen, and then when I found out Marines actually manned that fort, I got to digging into uh, the history, and I had to use all kinds of sources to put this book together. I located general justice three journals during that time period. I actually got my hands on one up at the University of Florida in Gainesville. Another one I found online, third one, uh, was in Harvard University Library. It took me about a year to find that one just because of the way it was listed online. So I called them and said, oh, sure, we'll make you a copy. So they did and send it. And then
0: there are other journals
1: of, of Colonel Foster. Marine Lieutenant Sprague actually resigned from the Marines and then joined the Army uh, during the Second Summer War. And years later, he wrote a really good book on, on the Second Summer War. But it's mostly during, from his experiences in the Army, except for when he Warriors out to, I mean, uh, Creek Indians out to Arkansas territory. Plus, Henry Prince wrote, uh, amidst the storm of bullets, that, that was a good source. And in there, there was a reference to, uh, spoke highly of the Marines when they, they, came into Tampa Bay and highly of, uh, of Commandant Henderson, but he also indicated that he had a nickname called Old Pistol to Windward. And uh, I've never been able to find out how he got that nickname. Even even talking with people of the Marine Archives, couldn't find anything on that. So it must have been something that happened on shipboard to somebody who uh, <clears throat> was relieving himself in the wrong direction. and <laughs> probably got got it all back on him.
0: But yeah, that was a, that was an interesting little find. So Dave, what's the value of reenactors and or living historians who go out to sites and engage with the public? It
1: enhances their knowledge of history, which even in speaking with with kids who are in school now learning history, uh, we really supplement their knowledge of it. Um, Apparently, it's it's a lot thinner knowledge that they're taught these days from when I went through school. It was pretty intense what we learned. I give talks at, at reenactment events, at schools, Tampa Bay History Center several times, and civic groups also. I find there's A lot of people that know so little about history, and it's a shame, especially what's going on today with uh, people wanting to tear down statues of historical figures, and they really don't know what all is behind it. I've really enjoyed doing this, interacting with people and, and helping to increase their knowledge of our history.
0: So you have a Marine uniform of the era. They had a winter uniform. They had a summer uniform. But the thing our listeners want to know is, do you have the leather neck?
1: Okay, the leather neck, leather necklock. This was very common in militaries like during the 1700s. It was to protect the neck against sword blows. The Marines kept them actually up through the Civil War. However, they were more ornamental to be worn with a dress uniform, worn than anything. Now, I wore one all day one time just to see what it was like uh, at a reenactment. It really wasn't too bad, but... Uh, in the heat down here, you wouldn't want to be wearing it. Their summer uniform was white, uh, which was common for militaries all around the world, made out of linen or cotton, and made those materials mainly because they were cheap, and it was white because they wouldn't spend the money on dye. Uh, the winter uniform was gray wool, and there again, that was common for most militaries. The Army had a sky blue wool for winter. Uh, now, during the reenactment, I've gone from using the gray wool to staying in the summer white. Uh, I got tired of explaining to people, yeah, it's, it's a gray uniform, but it's not a Confederate uniform. <laughs> mm-hmm. So they all, uh, people just tend to see gray and think Confederate. And no leather neck. Nope, no, don't wear the leather neck. I'll, I'll put it on display so people
0: can see what it is. Thank you for joining us today. Go so ahead to do it. And number five. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted the Seminole Wars Podcast 2020, all rights reserved. Front bumper music The Devil's Garden, Roast 'em, provided by kind permission of Rita Onman. Back bumper music Second Seminole Win by Jed Merum and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman, all rights reserved.